is Sophia. Uh, I've been going to the well for a little over a month. Um, <laughs> was asked to read Psalm 23 in Russian, so. Господь, ты пастырь мой, и ни в чем не буду нуждаться. Он покоит меня на значных пажитях и водит меня к водам тихим. Подкрепляет душу мою, направляет меня на стези правды ради имени своего. Если я пойду и долину смерти тени, не уболюсь зла, потому что ты со мной. Твой жезл и твой посох, они успокаивают меня. Ты приготовил предо мною трапезу виду врагов моих. Умолстил елем голову мою, чаша моя преисполнена. Так благость и милость Твоя да сопровождает меня во все дни жизни моей, и я пребуду в доме Господнем многие дни. This is the word of the Lord. Man, love that we are um, getting to read Psalm 23 in so many different languages. Uh, that's the first time I've actually heard scripture read in Russian at all, and so that was really cool. Thank you. What is up, y'all? Um, man, I'm so excited to be here. My name is Yusuf. I am the uh, not-so-new college director. My wife and I have been here for about six months. We moved from Dallas, and... Um, yeah, I've gotten to preach at a few guided gatherings in the past, but this is the first time I'm getting to preach in person, and it feels, it feels great. So um, just a huge blessing, huge blessing to, um, yeah, just get to see your faces and as we dive into God's Word together. So super excited. Um, hey, I don't know about y'all. I know about Huli, because she kind of mentioned earlier, but my soul, too, has, has needed um, this sermon series. We've been in... Psalm 23, just journeying through each verse, really getting an understanding of, of what it means that the Lord is our shepherd. And the idea is that as tempting as it is to just run right out of the season of COVID and pretend like it never happened, uh, that we would slow down, right? That we would process um, just what it means for, for God to be our shepherd in all the ways that shows itself and that we would gain a deeper understanding of, of just how much he loves us how much he cares for us. So today, we've made it to verse five. So Psalm 23, verse 5a. Um, uh, by a, I mean the first part of verse five, and, and it reads this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Today's title is the Lord our shepherd, our provider, and our victor, right? So, if you've journeyed from the very first verse, you see that this sheep-shepherd analogy has worked out pretty well, right? The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me uh, beside still waters. He leads me down paths of righteousness. But then you get to verse 5, and he's prepared a table for me. And that's kind of weird because, you know, t- uh, sheep, they don't, they don't sit at tables, Right? And so for me, even the thought of like sheep at tables, tables felt like some sort of weird Last Supper meme or something that I'd come across. Like, hey, yo, Bo Peep, can you pass the hot sauce? You know. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then you realize, okay, not only is there a table pre- prepared before me, but my enemies are also there. And it's like, who invited them? I mean, I, I didn't. <laughs> if I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat with people I like, right? So, so what's going on? What's going on here? 
you prepare a table before me. So shepherds, what they would do is they would journey up a mountain, right, to, to, meet, to, to reach the top. Oftentimes they would stop at these like plateaus, right, uh, area of kind of flat land um, to allow the sheep to rest and to graze before they journey on up the mountain. And so the shepherd would actually go ahead of the sheep to prepare the place, the plateau. Um, and that, uh, the plateau, another word for it is, is mesa, and that's the Spanish word for table. And so the shepherd would literally go up to the mountain or reach a plateau before the sheep arrive and prepare the plateau for the sheep to come and to rest and to eat. Um, and oftentimes preparation looked like removing a bunch of like poisonous weeds that the sheep would eat and then, you know, fall ill, right? And so um, David is likening God to a shepherd that provides, shepherd that provides a place for the sheep to rest and to eat. And this idea of of setting a table or preparing a table um, is seen in other places in scripture as well. In Psalm 78, the psalmist is reminiscing on the Exodus journey and how the people of Israel would complain in their hearts as they wandered through the desert, wondering if God could really provide for their needs out there. And they would, they would say, can God really spread a table for us in the wilderness, right? Can, can God really pr- provide my needs when it doesn't really seem like the circumstances allow, right? And in our context, this idea of kind of preparing a place, right, preparing um, a place for people to come and dwell, it, it's not foreign. Like, I think about if, if you are a good host, um, you care about the well-being of the people that you're hosting, Oftentimes, preparing a place or a table is tied to just serving people in general, right? And so you prepare a meal, maybe. You prepare your home for them to come, for them to dwell, for them to rest. My wife and I are expecting our uh, first uh, baby at the end of July. (laughs) Man, I'm excited. I'm so excited. Going to be a girl dad. It's awesome. Uh, And, you know, to say that we're merely preparing a place for her, almost seems like an understatement because every day I come home, there's some new package or some new, right, that someone's bought off of her registry. And at one point I was like, yo, can I, like, I'm getting a little salty. I, I, would, uh, I would like to put like a drum kit or something on the registry and see if I can get it. Because at this point, like 40% of what I own belongs to my unborn daughter, right? <laughs> but if you, if, you, if you think about it, as I've thought about it, I've grown very thankful because what people are doing, they're, they're partnering with us to prepare a place for our, our daughter to come and to dwell and to thrive, right? They're preparing a place um, for her to, to be well. They care about her well-being. I think there are a lot of people in our church that actually do this really, really well, this idea of preparing a place. I think about our CG hosts that, that open their homes week after week for people to come and receive community and be fed and, and on and on. Um, specifically, I actually think of, you know, I think of people like Katie Rose, actually, who, yeah, absolutely, uh, who, as a single mom, was already hosting a CG at her house, but when she learned that the college students needed a place to have community groups, she, she was like, yeah, absolutely. I don't mind having four kids running around, one CG on Tuesday, another one on Thursday, and she served them in that way, and that community group thrived, thrived because of her willingness, right, to serve. Another person, I didn't know you'd be sitting right front row, Nick, but I was going to call you out as well, Nick Garza, um, who 
whose church planting with Juhan at the end of the year, but yet has still helped us uh, lead the setup team, uh, a team that does what? Prepares Westover for people to come, for people to worship. And so God, when he says that, that he got, or when David says God prepares a table for me, right, he's saying that, man, God as a shepherd provides the needs of the sheep. And it's a beautiful thing. Here's my question, though. My question is, how does he know that? Like, how does, how does David know that God is a shepherd that serves the sheep through providing their needs? Is it because he knows the Exodus story? Because he does. He knows that as the people were grumbling in their hearts, is God going to provide for me that he rained manna and bread down from heaven, right, to, to, to sustain them? But yet, I, I don't think that David is just speaking from memorization of Scripture. I think that David has actually experienced God's provision as he is running from his enemies. Now, what am I talking about? Okay, so 1 Samuel talks about how David is running for his life. He's running from Saul. And as you can imagine, running for your life gets tiring, exhausting. Uh, and so he begins to starve. And so he's hungry. And he comes across a priest, and he's like, yo, feed me. I need food, right? And the priest is like, yo, I don't have any just regular food that I can, that I can give you. The only food I have available to me you're not allowed to eat. It's this holy bread that, that is present, is to be present in the tabernacle, the very dwelling place of God. The, the holy bread is to be there at all times, and only priests are allowed to eat it. And I think, uh, and then you, you read a little further and you realize that the priest actually ends up giving David some of this holy bread. And that's a, that's a huge deal that that would happen, like huge. And I feel like to really get a sense of just how big of a deal that is, I want us to take a quick little virtual tour uh, through the tabernacle itself, okay? So I've got like an overview of the tabernacle. It's the dwelling place of God. And I want you to focus, so there's a lot going on. I want you to focus just on the bottom couple words there, right? The tabernacle is split into three parts. You have the outer court. You have the holy place, which only priests were allowed to go into. And then you have the most holy place, which only the high priest could go into, once a year. So the holy place, the most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God dwelled. And you'll see that there's a separation between the most holy place and the holy place. So as a priest, if you were to walk in from the outer court into the holy place, this is what you would see. Okay, you'd, you'd see a few things, but I want us to focus on, on two things. One, notice the veil in the back. There is a veil that separates the most holy place from the holy place. No one's allowed back there, only the high priest once a year. But then I want you to focus your attention to the right. You see a table with some bread on it. So um, this table, um, when God instructs the Israelites to build the tabernacle, he includes instructions on everything that needs to be included in the tabernacle, the dimensions, and he tells them how to build everything. And in uh, Leviticus chapter 24, uh, verse 5 and 6, he tells them that they need to, you know, to build this, uh, this table. It's called the table of the showbread. And that there must be at all times 12 loaves. And what would happen is every Sabbath, the, the priests would come in and prepare the table. They would remove the old loaves and put a fresh batch there. And the priests, they represented Israel. They were... They were called to eat the old batch 
as acknowledgement that God is their provider, that God is their sustainer, right? And so this table of the showbread, the fact that David was allowed to eat this bread was unlawful. It wasn't allowed. Only the priests had to, they had to do a whole cleansing ritual before they could even enter the holy place. And yet, David says that you prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies, right? David is speaking from experience that as he's, as he's running for his life, God in his mercy sustains him. So when he says God is a provider, he's speaking from experience. What about us? What about us? I know for me in college, um, I had a friend of a different religion, and he would always say this thing, man, God provides, God provides, God provides. Or no, 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 that's not what he would say. He would say, God is gracious. God is gracious. And I'd be like, yo, what grace is this guy talking about? Because as a Christian, my God has shown me grace, right? I mean, Jesus Christ, the very son of God, becoming a human being, dying on a cross so that I may have his righteousness. There, you cannot, there is no definition of grace that outmatches that one. And so when he's like, my God is gracious, I'm like, well, what has your God done for you? Like, nothing in his religion states that his God has ever done anything like that for you. So I came to a conclusion. I came to the conclusion that my friend does not actually believe that God is gracious. He just says it because it's the religious thing to say. God is gracious. God is gracious. And, and as I kind of come to this judgment on my friend, the Lord convicts me, like, first of all, don't judge a friend. Second of all, you do the same thing. That when you say that, that God provides, you don't actually mean it. What you mean is that you provide. And he was right, as God often is, right? Because in college, I had a, I had a dope uh, engineering internship going into my senior year. And I was balling, y'all. This company was known for paying their interns really, really well. And so I was able to pay some of my rent. I was able to pay for some of my, I was balling. I could have got some of Juhan's J's. Like I was, I was balling. And I had actually just started dating my very first girlfriend. And we would go on dates every week. And guess who paid for them? I was balling, y'all. Until, until I get a phone call that lets me know, yep. That lets me know, okay, they're laying off all of their interns. And just like that, as you can imagine, the anxiety that's produced. How am I going to pay for school? How am I going to pay for rent? Right? Is my girlfriend going to leave me now that I'm broke and don't have any money? Right? <laughs> yeah. And, and the story there ends well. We got married. We're having a baby. It's great, right? But still... God revealed to me in that moment that when I said that God provided for me, I didn't actually believe it. And so I kid you not, for eight months straight, every month the Lord would provide my rent somehow, some way. I'm not even kidding. I got into a car accident where I was rear-ended and their insurance company was like, hey, here's $600. And I looked at my bumper that's barely warped and I was like, you just paid rent this month, thank you. <laughs> This is God providing for me so that when I say, okay, God provides, I'm not just saying what I know Christians want to hear. I can actually believe it, right? So what about you? When you say that God provides for you, are you speaking from experience 
Or are you speaking Christianese? Right? Like, like the meal that you ate last night or this morning coming in to church, did you just kind of, with your own resources, you just, you just provided this meal for yourself? Or can you say that God in his mercy provided you physical sustenance for your body because he's a provider and everything that you have comes from him? Can you say that from experience? Or the money that you may or may not have tithed in our giving time today. Can you say that, that man, God in his, in his provision has given me his grace and blessing to accumulate these resources that he calls me to steward. And so that I steward them well. Why? Because I know that God is my provider. Or did you? Did you? You got a degree, you went to school, you got a job, and now you're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and you are providing for yourself. Which one is it? Right? Because the Bible tells us that the very breath in our lungs is a gift from the Lord. That when we inhale and exhale, that's evidence of God's provision. So what about you? Can you speak from experience? Can you speak from experience when you say that God is your provider? And I think the call here as we journey on throughout the rest of this verse is that we would believe what we say about God, right? That we would believe what we say about God. So David says, you prepare for me a table in the presence of my enemies. Uh, Quick question, who is David's enemy? Like, y'all can talk back. Who's, Who's David's enemy? Saul? Okay, so, and, and I would say that that's correct, but in case you don't know how the story ends, Saul doesn't end up killing David. But David dies anyways. Saul doesn't kill David. You know what does? Natural causes. Natural causes. So, so I would say that even though Saul was David's enemy, and he could outrun Saul, there was an even greater enemy than Saul that David couldn't outrun. Death is the enemy that none of us can outrun. Death is the enemy that none of us can outrun. So your enemy isn't your boss, the boss you don't like. Your enemy is not the coworker that talks crap about you or that you talk crap about them. Your enemy is not a political party or a political candidate, right? Your enemy is your sin and the physical and spiritual decay that you experience because of it. That is the greater enemy. Um, Ashley's grandpa passed away a couple weeks ago at 91. And nothing crazy, no malicious illness, No unfair or untimely circumstance like a car accident, right? His heart just stopped. No pain. Just gone. He died how most of us say we want to die. Like, how do you want to die? No pain, in my sleep, just just gone, right? An ideal circumstance for an inevitable outcome. And yet, at his funeral, as I stare at his casket... And, and realize that Ashley's grandpa's lifeless body lay in it. 
I could not get over this, this, this fresh sense of the hopelessness of the reality of death, y'all. That we are, we are all going to die. And the process of death begins the moment you're born. Death is an enemy we cannot outrun. And yet, I would even argue that the greatest enemy to mankind isn't just physical death. I would argue that the greatest enemy to mankind is spiritual death. See, death is separation, right? When you, when you die physical, physically, physical death is the separation of the soul from the body, but spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God, right? And so in the Garden of Eden, when, when, when God tells Adam and Eve, listen to me, I love you. I, I must tell you that the day that you decide to go against me, to, to rebel against the very source of life, the very source of your life, the moment you decide to rebel against me, the moment you decide to cut me out of the equation, to say that you want to do life on your own ter- terms, that's the day you will what? Surely die. And when they sinned, when they, when they ate that apple, did they die physically? No, they would eventually as a result. But as God takes them and banishes them from the garden away from his presence, they do die spiritually, separate from the very source of their life, separate from God. And if you think about the tabernacle, that veil that we saw is is the physical representation of spiritual death separation, that your sin separates your soul from me. And so when David says, you prepare for me a table in the presence of my enemies, every week when the priests go in and prepare the table of the showbread, in a way they're preparing this table in the presence of humanity's greatest enemy, the veil, separation from God. And yet what's amazing And what's crazy is that this this table of the showbread doesn't just symbolize providence, that that God is the sustainer and provider for for Israel, because that's what it was meant to symbolize for them. But in that same table, in the very instructions that God gives the priests on how to make the table, how to make the bread, how many pieces of bread they should have on the table, in those same instructions, contains a foreshadowing of how God plans to conquer humanity's greatest enemy, the veil, separation. It's a foreshadowing of how God plans to reconcile humanity to himself by tearing that veil. And that foreshadowing is seen in Leviticus 24.5 in that word loaf. You shall take fine flour, he tells them how to make it, And he tells them that it all needs to be in each loaf. Now, that word loaf or bread appears all throughout the Bible, right? Israelites love bread. And most of the time in the Hebrew, the word for bread means bread. The word for loaf means bread. But here, the Greek, uh, the Hebrew root word here is halal. And it means to pierce, or to wound. 
It's the same word in the Hebrew in Isaiah 53.5, where it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Are, are y'all seeing this, right? Like this isn't just about David. You prepare for me a table in the presence of my enemies. You provided for me my, my, my hunger. You, you provided it when it was unlawful. Your grace and your mercy, you allowed me to, to be sustained as I was running from my enemies. It's not just about that, even though that's true. When the priest would come in and prepare this table every week and eat the old batch of bread as a physical reminder that God is their provider, that God is their sustainer for the nation of Israel, it's about that, but it's not just about that. In all of this, God is showing how he plans to conquer the veil. Humanity's number one enemy, spiritual separation, and that he's going to do it through piercing his son, through allowing his son to be crushed for our iniquities. And we see 700 years later, this happens. This verse in Isaiah happens as Jesus is led up this hill to Golgotha, but not as a shepherd that's going to clear the way and, and remove all the poisonous weeds so the, the sheep don't feed on it, but as a shepherd that knows the only way to truly remove the poison is to become a sheep and to drink it himself. And to drink it himself. And we see that Jesus is crucified. He's pierced in his side. And as this happens, we see what happened. We see John, John 6 come to life. John 6, where Jesus is talking about how he's the bread of life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for my life, for the life of the world, is my flesh. And the moment that he died, humanity's greatest enemy, spiritual separation from God, rep represented by the veil, tears in half, signifying that God has won. God has conquered our greatest enemy, that we now have full reconciliation with the Father, that not only did he prepare a table to foreshadow how he plans to conquer the enemy of spiritual death, that if you put your faith in Christ, that same presence that was in the most holy place now takes habitants in you, now lives and dwells in you. You have full access as children of God because Christ is our victor. Christ has provided not only our physical needs, but our greatest spiritual needs. And so even when we die physically, we never die. Like, you may be in the lowest valley. I don't know what's happened as you've come in here. Because life is hard. And so you may, you may be going through it, the lowest of the low. And yet, you'll never die. 
Christ is your victor. Prognosis says you have six months to live. You'll never die. Christ is your victor. As I, as I look into, uh, as I stare at the casket of, of Ashley's grandma, grandpa, and I realize that a lifeless body lay inside, I know that if he knew Jesus like we thought he did, when his eyes closed for the last time, he didn't die. He became more alive than you or I can imagine on this side of eternity. And what's amazing about God is that this idea of him preparing a table for us, meeting our needs, defeating our our greatest spiritual enemy, he doesn't stop there. That as children of God, we are now lifted to a place of honor when we die. That, That Jesus literally tells his disciples, like, bro, it gets better. I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you there. He goes to prepare a place for us that as his children, we may dwell with him forever. Praise him. Praise God that he would provide for us and defeat our greatest spiritual enemy. So honestly, as as we kind of just come to a close, I want us to, as we are reading the Psalms this week in our quiet time, that we would go line by line, that we would ask the Lord, God, show me Show me how I've experienced this, that you are my comforter, not just because I've read it in a text. I can proclaim truths, but you don't just want me to proclaim truths from head knowledge. You want me to experience it. As we come across verse 5a, you prepare for me a table in the presence of my enemies, that we would experience that, that God, you provide for me, you bless me, with the gift of life, that the very breath I have comes from you. And not only that, the enemy that, that we can't outrun. Even in a city like Austin where they're, they're pitching how to gain 10 years on your life. Make sure you eat these fruits. Make sure you exercise this many times a week. Only shop at natural grocers. <laughs> It'll tack on 10 years, 15 years. You can't outrun it. And yet... Physical death is but a mere reflection on what it truly means to die, to be separate from our maker. And thank you, Lord, for piercing, allowing your son to be pierced so that the veil would rip in half, that you would conquer even death. Because you love us, Lord, and because you are just that good. You are that great. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are a provider, Lord. Everything we have, not just physical possessions, Lord, our very bodies, our hands, our feet, our eyes, the clothes that we wear, the air that we breathe, all of it, God, is a gift from you that you are our provider, Lord. And I pray that when we, when we say that, when we sing that, that we would believe it. God, we thank you for being our victor, that because of you, Lord, because of your death, burial, and resurrection, resurrection proving that you have conquered the grave, 
that you've conquered humanity's number one enemy, that we get to live as sons and daughters because of that, that we no longer fear death, God, because you conquered it, that death no longer stings us, God, that when we close our eyes for the last time on this earth, we, we are made more alive in your presence. And that you don't just provide for us here. You say that you are preparing a place for us to dwell in the Father's house forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.